Welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. For episode number 77, I am joined by Andy Blow, the co-founder of Precision Hydration. I asked Andy to help us better understand the role of electrolyte replacement for the older endurance athlete. I'll admit that I have long had the feeling that electrolyte replacement was largely a marketing scam or at best a way to make water taste better so we drink more. Turns out I have been wrong in a way that is very important to understand. Of course, dehydration is real and a serious performance issue in many ways. When we combine sweating with dietary issues and long physical efforts in the heat, knowing how to replace water and electrolytes is very important for minimizing cramps and recovery time and for feeling good while exercising. So listen in as Andy gives us some no-nonsense advice on the whys and the hows of replacing electrolytes lost during exercise. All right, let's talk to Andy. Andy Blow, thank you. Welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Thanks for the thanks for the invite, Joe. Pleased to be here. Well, I appreciate you making some time. Uh, you're uh, calling in from uh, where across the pond? I'm in Christchurch in Dorset in the UK, which is on the south coast, about 90 minutes ah. outside of London. Nice. Very nice. Well, thank you for that. And thank you to the developers of this technology that makes it sound like you're right next door. It's working really great. So, Andy, you are a number of things. You're a sports scientist. You also are the founder of a company that, among other things, sells electrolyte, I guess, supplements. And I'll give you a chance to tell us a bit about that. And I understand that the backstory there is you, as an athlete, high-level athlete, had problems that you solved with electrolytes. And very interested in, in hearing about that. The main topic of today, after we get through some of the interesting backstory about yourself is this question of, gosh, you know, we hear from our doctors about, you know, make sure we don't get high blood pressure and keep our sodium intake down on one hand. And on the other hand, we hear about how bad dehydration is and how important electrolytes are. And gosh, you know, salt is an electrolyte, isn't it? Uh, you know, so how, how can I have less of less of it on in one hand and more of it on the other hand and both are good and i'm pretty confused so maybe you can help clear some of that up what do you think yeah it is it is a confusing conflicted topic area but we might not you know we might not be able to clarify everything for everyone because this that's the nature of this it is a complicated area but i think it's certainly worth talking about it in context of what it means for what public health advice where that kind of stops short of being useful for athletes because athletes have very different requirements in terms of you know food nutrition hydration to to the average person and that's probably where a bit of the conflict exists and we can sort of explore that that area yeah excellent excellent that's exactly what i'm hoping to do for myself and you know and people like me and maybe you're uh, have worked that through for your own self I know that you started this journey as a uh, as an athlete. I, I wonder if maybe you could start by giving us your background. You know who you are, and how did you come to know what you know, and start your company, and and hopefully in that story you'll tell us about your athletic endeavors. Sure. Yeah. Well, I've, I'm someone who's been interested and involved in sport my whole life. I started off like every other young lad in the UK playing football or soccer. You know, as you would as you would know it. And, yeah. you know, that was my obsession for many years. I've now got an eight-year-old son. He is, despite my best efforts, obsessed with soccer, plays it all the time, <laughs> watches it all the time. It's just culturally what happens here. Um, yeah. And and I pursued that for many years, but I was a pretty mediocre soccer player. And um, alongside it, my dad was very encouraging about me doing cross-country running and a bit of swimming. And some. he got into endurance sports quite late. He got into endurance in his 40s because... He started refereeing the soccer matches that I was in when I was a youngster uh -huh. and felt found he couldn't keep up with the game. And, uh -huh. and so we started to do a little two, three mile running loop together. So I would be training for the game and he and that led him to running 10Ks and eventually marathons and then doing triathlons and, and all that kind of stuff. So he's he's probably like a, an absolute. I should tell him about your podcast, Joe, because he's <laughs> target market for you. Um, in, and, and, and my dad's in his well into his seventies now, but still does still does five k run in just over twenty three minutes, I think. And you know he's in great shape and fantastic. That, well, he sounds like he's really doing it. You know, even though he started late, he grabbed it with 
both hands and he's yeah. still doing it. Well, actually, there's a there's a, an article that I wrote on our website, which I'll share with you, which some of your listeners might appreciate, which is a bit of a potted history of my dad's performances from starting in his 40s. He kind of peaked in his performances when he was close to 50. And then there's been a bit of a decline since then. But it's it's an interesting journey. And it because he's very meticulous with recording all of his PBs and his uh, best times and, and that kind of thing. So I'll, I'll make sure I share that one with you. But yeah, thank you. But my dad was a big and, you know, he is still a you know a big encourager of what I do and um, sort of got me into doing some uh, a swim run race an aquathon where you swam in the pool and did a run and it was alongside an adult triathlon this is probably when I was in my mid-teens and I did pretty well at that I don't know where I came but I got a taste of being quite good at something and I also really liked the look of the, the, the cycling element. There was some flash bikes there, triathletes, as you well know, spend a lot of money on carbon and titanium and yeah. stuff. And I saw all of that and I said to my dad, would, would he get me a, a road bike? So he actually purchased one secondhand off my cousin, which was worth about 50 bucks or something or probably less. <laughs> but I fell in love with it, started road biking and then entered my first triathlon. and. I, that was in the era when the Dave Scotts and Mark Allens and Scott Tinleys were and Scott Molinas were all um, doing the Hawaii Ironman. So right. I, I got fascinated by that, even though it was a niche sport and very niche in the UK. I joined a local triathlon club, started doing triathlons, and always had this aim that you now I'd love to do Hawaii Ironman one day. Yeah, uh, yeah. I ended I ended up at, at, at university studying sports science because. That was what I, I wanted to do. I had no idea about what I'd do with a career, but I knew that sport was the route for me. And so I studied sport and exercise science at the University of Bath. And, you know, very fortuitously around that time, the university was being set up as the National Centre for Triathlon in the UK. So yeah. I received some really good coaching. There were a lot of good athletes around, a lot that were preparing. This is in the late 90s. So they were preparing for the inaugural triathlon at the Sydney Olympics. Um, that was very inspirational for me and I targeted trying to get into the squad for the 2004 Olympic Games and whilst I got into the wider group of athletes for consideration I was never really one of those in proper contention I was I was a pretty decent athlete at that short course stuff but not world class and so that allowed me to then leave that to one side and start to pursue Ironman which was, you know, kind of the route a lot of athletes would go if you weren't quick enough for doing short course stuff. And I, and I tried, I tried a few Ironman races, and that was where I first had this inclination that my physiology was holding me back a little bit. The first Ironman race I did was in Switzerland in the year two thousand. It was very, very hot. It was probably in Celsius, like well into the th thirty-two, thirty-five degrees, which is, I guess, must be in the eighties or nineties Fahrenheit. I really underperformed horribly. You know, I, I kind of had myself pegged as being someone who could probably get in the top 20 or top 30 with the yeah. with my level of fitness. And yeah, I, I honestly couldn't tell you where I came, but I walked most of the marathon and I felt horrible. And I was cramping and I had such extreme muscle soreness for days afterwards. I knew that something was like horribly wrong. Mm. That, that was the first of many frustrating experiences with racing long distance races in the heat. Long, long story short there, a friend of mine who was a doctor who I mulled these kind of things over with, took a look at some race photos, saw the amount of salt that was salt stains on my kit, looked at the symptoms I was experiencing and suggested that maybe the problem that I was having was to do with electrolyte imbalance or electrolyte loss because I was often, I was often getting cramps, I was often getting quite um, nauseous. I was, I was suffering from symptoms which were associated with kind of either dehydration or hypernatremia or a combination of the two. Hypernatremia being when you dilute the electrolyte levels and the sodium levels down in your blood to a significant degree. By drinking just straight water? Yeah, drinking either straight water or sort of sports drinks with very low sodium content. And, and either drinking too much or, as it turned out, the really interesting bit in my case was this whole thing was being exacerbated by the fact that when I sweat, not only do I sweat a lot for a person my size, I have a very, very high electrolyte concentration in my sweat. I lose over double the amount of sodium in my sweat that the average person does. And I lose five or six times what some of the least salty people lose. 
So mm. we calculated that in an Ironman triathlon, I could be losing upwards of 20 to 25,000 milligrams of sodium in a single event. And I was probably replacing a minuscule amount of that. So, so like 25 yeah. grams? 25 that, grams, yeah. And, and like the, the normal daily allowance for the U.S., I think is like a gram and a half or something like that? Yeah, it's so, about two, I think it's about 2,000 or 2,500. So it's like 10 okay. times the, the RDA, yeah. basically. And even, okay. you know, I, th I think it's always a difficult thing to put a finger on, but there's talk about the kind of average sodium intake in the West being in the three to 4,000 milligrams a day um, range for people with an average Western diet. And and so on. even on that, I would be seven or eight times under salted on a day when I was doing this. So yeah. the, my uh, Dr. Jutley, friend of mine, helped me put together a plan, which was essentially a, a plan to reduce the total amount of fluid I was taking in, but to increase the amount of sodium I was taking in using salt tablets. That was the most efficient way to do it at the time. I was just popping a lot of salt tablets on the bike and on the run in a triathlon. And the, the difference was nothing short of a miracle. Um, it was like night and day. All of a sudden, I found that I was able to perform at the level that my my fitness and training indicated I should, as opposed to being hampered with this sort of incessant problem of, of falling apart in the heat. And right. I, you'll know this as, a, as an athlete, Joe, it's like there are very few things that you ever do which make a night and day difference. You know, most yeah. improvement in endurance sports is really – it's, it's all about hard work and incremental improvement. We all think yeah. we're going to put a new pair of shoes on or jump on a new bike and go significantly faster, but it, it very rarely happens. But yeah. honestly, for me, this, this was the difference between it me taking me 10 and a half or 11 hours to complete an Ironman and me doing it in close to nine hours. It was, wow. you know, unbelievable difference. But it wasn't like that difference was like a boost in performance. It just allowed me to perform at the level that my fitness and training indicated I probably should be performing at. And that- yeah, You just got the rock out of your shoe. Exactly, yeah. It was like, un it was solving a problem. And that, that was a really interesting experience for me as an individual. And then that was toward the end of my time doing Ironman seriously. So I got a few good races under my belt, but pretty soon after that, for lots of reasons, I started to change my focus. And I was, that led me, I was working with athletes, I was coaching, I was running a small sports science lab. And I decided to buy a sweat testing kit because I thought if this was so incredibly useful to me, I can't be the only one. So I started testing athletes. So that was the sort of genesis of the idea of, of getting sweat testing out to, to a bigger group of athletes and going from there. That eventually... Yeah, yeah you know, led to the formation of the company, which is now Precision Fuel and Hydration. And so what we were founded on was this idea that, particularly in, this, in the area of hydration for endurance athletes, you, you, you need to individualize what people are doing in order to get the best out of them. And so offering sweat testing and electrolyte products of different strengths was how we, we got off the line around about 11 years ago now in, in 2011. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. I, I'll say that I didn't even didn't even notice that the products that I had used in the past for this purpose didn't allow that. The, the only way I could get more electrolyte was by putting more product into the same volume, and I often did. Yeah, that was really interesting. And and by the way, I have tried your products because I read that um, they have more electrolyte in them by multiples than other competing products. I thought, oh, I wonder how salty they'll taste. And they don't taste salty. If you're thinking about it, you can tell that there's a salt in it, but it actually doesn't taste salty, even the one that was the most salty. So that's good formulation, I mean, because nobody wants to drink some seawater, mm. you know, when they're really thirsty and they desperately need some fluid. They don't want to be turned off by something that's unpleasant to drink. That's no, good. Good to hear. And I think, well, on that point specifically, the way the way that that's commonly done, sodium chloride. If you dissolve regular salt, which is what you lose in your sweat, if you dissolve that in large quantities into water, it obviously does taste like seawater. Effectively, it's it's very difficult. It's it's impossible to mask that taste. 
but because the sodium is the is the electrolyte that's most influential in fluid balance in the body and that's the one that is lost in the greatest quantities in sweat the the typically in sports nutrition products that are well formulated you'll you'll find they use sodium carbonate or sodium citrate or some other kind of sodium which doesn't carry quite as strong as a saltier taste and we we spent a lot of time trying to formulate products that were palatable for drinking over long durations of time because i know what it's like when you reach for that warm water bottle six hours into a long day you don't need to be choking down whatever's in it it needs to be it needs to be a pretty mild taste ideally we'd have made something with no taste but that's impossible because as soon as you start adding something to the drink your your body's going to detect there's something in there and it's going to bring a taste with it but we did try and make them as as mild as possible yeah and since we're talking about it now um i I do want to get back to the subject matter here but i've tasted a, a few of your products and even the like the gels that are the point of which is to have calories yeah. in it. They are not overwhelmingly sweet. Uh, they are, because uh, so many products today are like dessert. Yeah. You know, it, it's a sugar added fruit juice kind of a flavor where it's just this overwhelming sweetness. And wh- I don't know whether that's because that maybe some people like that or whether they're masking something or what, but. Uh, your products do not taste like candy. Mm. They taste like, they taste pleasant. Yeah. So I'm not going to be reluctant to have it, but they taste like something that I'm taking for a purpose, not because I'm sitting in front of the TV and I'm looking for something sweet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The same process went into that. We made the first batch of our energy gels in our own kitchen. And what we were searching for was a base gel which we would then potentially add flavor to but we we tried lots of different flavors and then we tried we just out of curiosity we just tried the base product with no flavoring in it and thought actually this is really good this is this doesn't taste of much and then again six hours into a hot long bike ride or halfway through an Ironman triathlon you're going to want something which doesn't offend and you know a good test for me actually was that just on this last monday i was doing i did a quite a long endurance event in sweden the swim run race which was nearly nine hours long and i managed to consume nearly 80 grams of carbohydrate per hour almost exclusively on our own energy gels without really getting too sick of them by the end which i was i was pretty pleased with because in the past when i've done that kind of event i've typically had to switch it up later on or accept taking in less calories because you get to the point where you just can't face another one so, <laughs> i know what you mean yeah i so do know what you mean good to hear yeah. that that feedback as well yeah yeah good well so good job with that so let's get back to this question of how is it true and i believe that it is true i, I know that there's some debate about it that i think comes from some well-meaning people trying to do scientific studies that are really quite challenging to do because it's hard to put a person in a box and monitor what they do 100% accurately over a long enough period of time to really know what's going on. And so that, you know, they'll do things like they'll have surveys and they'll ask people, what did you eat for the last year? Oh, well, that's going to be accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, Hell, I can't remember what I ate yesterday. Or, you know, they'll, for trying to understand excretion of sodium, they'll, they'll measure one day's worth of sodium. Uh, excretion and um, which of course is skipping the sweat altogether but checking the sodium in the urine and and then you know they find that gosh you know if you're just looking at one day it naturally fluctuates and so you're not really getting a very accurate picture of how much they ate based on how much they urinated out in one day but I think that it's clear it's fairly clear anyway and the more sodium that a person eats during their life the more their blood pressure will tend to creep up over time. And from one of the guests that I had on the show a little while ago, I believe that that comes from the kidneys slowly being less efficient at getting salt out of the body. And therefore, there's, a, there's more sodium that, that's building up and it's the, the blood pressure tends to creep up over time. And that is kind of a, a Western diet phenomenon. So maybe that on one hand is bad for the blood pressure, which has a lot of downstream problems that probably applies to just general people, which is 
we're talking sedentary people generally an athlete maybe who's got a little too much sodium in their blood they're they're set up for not getting dehydrated as quickly as they might have otherwise but still if they are doing long distance events in the heat i, I guess is the extreme example yeah. and doing something really short when they're not sweating maybe is the other extreme and somewhere there's this transition from where you really need to do something down to where you need to do less and less. And maybe at some point you don't need to do anything. And I don't know where that is. And maybe it's person by person. But even for the people who are worrying about blood pressure chronically because of overconsumption of sodium chronically, at some level, people need to replace their fluids. And in order to, to for those fluids to remain in the body and be useful to the body they need to replace their electrolytes too yeah is that all true yeah i think there's a, there's a lot to unpack there but i think i think the the literature around sodium and blood pressure definitely globally tends to point in the direction that increased sodium consumption over a lifetime or high level of sodium consumption over a lifetime can result in hypertension in some people there is argument about whether some people are what they call salt sensitive or not and the fact that there are plenty of examples of people who eat very high salt diets but don't experience sure high blood pressure particularly in different cultures where for example i think japan is often cited as somewhere where there's typically a pretty high sodium consumption in the diet but other characteristics of the diet aren't as negative is the western diet in terms of maybe less refined sugars and those sort of things and alongside that you don't see as much of an inc instance of high blood pressure so it may not be that you can identify sodium as being a, a single causative factor but clearly there's a mechanism by which you know sodium drives fluid retention fluid retention pumps plasma volume up and plasma increased plasma volume increases blood pressure so you can certainly see that that is an obvious link, but it's probably more nuanced and more complicated than we still understand. Yeah, maybe there's more root causes yeah. um, affecting that is what you're saying. Definitely, and I think the other interesting thing which has become, which has risen more to prominence in terms of the reading I've done in the last few years is this idea of a J-shaped relationship between sodium, hypertension and other health problems. So a J-shaped response is obviously one where at the lower end, if you there's a sweet spot essentially, you get the, the lowest incidence of problems with a moderate intake of sodium. And if you take too little, that can be problematic from a health point of view. And if you take too much, that can be problematic. And that is an interesting concept for athletes versus the normal population who don't exercise because clearly the sweet spot of what is too little or what is too much is going to move to the left and to the right based on yeah. your fluid and salt turnover. Now, if yeah. you're someone who does 20 or 30 minutes of light exercise a few times a week, that might be quite good for you from a cardiovascular health point of view but it's unlikely to drive a significant amount of sweating which is going to cause a significant shift in your requirement for fluids and salts in other words do those people need to take extra salt or have electrolyte supplements or anything like almost certainly no but then if you go to your example the other extreme people who participate in long hot endurance events and put in hours and hours of training every week you know i look at our typical customers these are people who are probably training at least an hour a day if not more some of them live a lot of them live in hot climates and some of them are putting in 15 or 20 hours of training a week now yeah. even at a moderate sweat rate of you know one liter per hour if you have the the average sodium concentration which is getting close to a thousand milligrams a liter each hour that you're training you're losing an extra gram of sodium and all of a sudden those losses can mount up over the week and mean that what if you were just just relying on the kind of intake that a normal person has in their diet you could easily get yourself into a position where your sodium intake is is inadequate and so it, it, in that respect it's very similar to the argument around calories or anything else you know most people probably over consume calories for what they're doing but we know that from the data that there's a significant problem in endurance athletes with people under eating and under fueling so oh, yeah. the one size fits all advice especially the one that's promoted in public health messaging about reduce 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 
is is not necessarily helpful to athletes. I think that probably is kind of the key here because the the people listening in, and, you know, and myself, you know, we're not sedentary. We're not your average person eating a lot of processed foods that have lots of sodium added to them for whatever industrial purposes. And so, you know, we are sweating. Some of us maybe have a lot of salt in our sweat. Another condition is that some people live maybe at altitude, like in the Denver area, and they're, they lose a lot of water in their breath. Now they're losing water that they have to replace. They're probably not losing salt that way. So anyway, there's a lot of moving parts here, but obviously people need to replace water that they lose. And I think, I think that's an interesting point, Joe, because there's a lot of acceptance. There's, a, there's almost what I would say universal acceptance that active people need to drink more. The, the idea yeah. of replacing more water or more fluid is seen as universally positive for athletes. But yeah. why there's not quite as much acceptance of the fact that along with that, fluid balance and hydration in the body is all about the balance between fluid volume and electrolytes in that fluid. And so there is definitely less acceptance. And I think that really does come down to the fact that sodium has been demonized by public health is that it, it feels controversial to be recommending someone to take on more sodium. Well, so I want to mention and then ask you to talk about the ingredients. You know, what are these electrolytes? Because there's more to it than sodium in your product. Yeah. I've always had sort of lowish blood pressure, not like low, but low normal. Yeah. And so this high blood pressure thing, this was for other people. I didn't yeah. have to worry about that for whatever reason. And this was true when I was younger and ate terribly. Um, and younger, ate terribly, didn't sleep enough and worked myself to death and didn't work out. I mean, still I had lowish and terrible stress and I still had lowish blood pressure. So yeah, blood pressure was not a problem for me uh, until now. And as I exercised more and got my diet dialed in very healthy and feel like I'm healthier than I really have ever been in my life, my blood pressure's been creeping up. Mm. And, you know, so I check it out. It's like, oh, yeah, potassium. If you start supplementing potassium, actually, it's not supplementing. It was like eat potassium-rich foods. Yeah. Then it can help with your blood pressure. Well, mm. I started supplementing potassium, and sure as hell, boo, my blood pressure is right back to where it used to be mm. on the low normal. And I saw that your products have potassium in them as well. But in addition to that, other things as well. Tell us about what are these electrolytes that you include and why do yeah. you include them? It's, it's a pretty simple rationale, really, in that when, when you take a sweat sample from someone, the, the products that we make are predominantly produced to help people maintain hydration status. So by extension, maintain homeostatic balance in the body when you're exercising. So the idea is that you're never going to replace and you shouldn't need to replace 100% of your fluid and electrolyte losses during a bout of activity. You, you have, as long as you start well, properly hydrated, then you have fluids and electrolytes in reserve and your body's, you know, we're designed, we're, we're kind of built on the, our physiology is, is the hunter-gatherer physiology, whereby you would, you would go out and exercise effectively in the heat hunting gathering whatever for hours you would have a capacity to then sweat and lose body fluid body electrolytes and replace them overnight or in the evening and then go again the next day that's kind of the fundamental of our physiology so you don't need that one-to-one -one replacement when you're exercising but when you're pushing yourself very hard for multiple hours and that a level of more aggressive supplementation helps you to maintain your performance so in our products, what we've got is they're, they're predominantly, sodium is the predominant electrolyte in them because sodium is the predominant electrolyte in your sweat. Sweat is drawn from your blood plasma, which is part of your extracellular fluid volume, and the, and the predominant electrolyte in there is sodium. So that's what shows up most of all in your sweat. You do lose a little bit of potassium, calcium, magnesium, um, potassium happens to be the major electrolyte in intracellular fluid, so the fluid that's inside your body's cells. So one of the reasons why potentially increasing the potassium in your diet has helped that is it's helped to, it will be helping to rebalance 
intracellular versus extracellular fluid because obviously intracellular fluid levels are not influencing your blood pressure in the same way so that 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 balance of those electrolytes is really important and because mm. potassium is lost in much smaller and more uniform amounts in people's sweat sodium is is higher but it's also more variable between people mm. we we opted to put very basic you know amounts of potassium calcium magnesium that are congruent with what we see in a typical sweat sample just because although the evidence doesn't necessarily strongly exist that they need to be replaced during exercise it seems like a it seems like a prudent thing to do if you're just trying to maintain balance if you're losing a little bit of potassium putting a little bit back in a congruent amount with what you're losing sure doesn't seem like a bad strategy so you're not putting enough in so that they don't need to eat any potassium in their lives. It's just to replace what they're losing in their sweat. In sweat, yes. It wouldn't be, so our supplements wouldn't be viewed as a kind of day-to-day. -day. It's not like taking a vitamin supplement or something like that when you're not exercising. The recommendation around using our products is very strong and clear that it's around times of dehydration or times of risk of dehydration. So anytime fluid losses are high, most commonly that's through heavy bouts of sweating through exercise, but we do, they, they could easily as well be used to help with people who are dehydrated through sickness and diarrhea or um, whatever else, you know, they're very, the strongest product we do is actually quite a similar formulation in some ways to like a Pedialyte type drink mm. where the idea is to absorb and retain as much fluid as possible in a short period of time when when your body fluid levels are being challenged. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. And magnesium is something, of course, people have been hearing about magnesium for a long time now, and there's all kinds of magnesium products you can take for general health, for getting sleepy at night, for making your bowels move. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that... Um, but you're saying the amount of magnesium that you put in and maybe the type is something that'll be well absorbed and it'll just replace a typical amount that is lost in the sweat. Yeah, it's a, it's a very small sort of almost token amount that represents what is typically lost in sweat because magnesium is sweat is not very rich in magnesium. So mm -hmm. if you are we, we do get stories from people who who have had problems with, say, muscle cramping. Um, either in exercise or just uh, at any time who found who have found that magnesium supplements have helped them and of course then they draw this big conclusion that actually that that's the cure for muscle cramps and certainly magnesium and other electrolytes are very implicated in muscular contraction and relaxation and in the firing of nerve impulses and that sort of thing so it's, it's not implausible that a, an imbalance in any electrolytes could cause issues with muscle contraction and rela relaxation including cramping but i think the reality there is that that's more likely to be from say an insufficient amount of magnesium in the day-to-day -day diet or uh, the inability to absorb an appropriate amount of magnesium as opposed to it being driven through acute sweat losses uh, we can definitely right. it's, it's been proven many times and there's plenty of data out there to support the idea that you can accrue a pretty nasty acute sodium deficit if you're a heavy sweater in a few hours of activity you can without supplementation you can put yourself into trouble in terms of fluid and sodium loss whereas the amount of sweat you'd need to lose to become seriously deficient in magnesium or potassium is much much higher kind of get getting outside of the realms of what is plausible even for endurance athletes so mm. if supplementation of other electrolytes is something that people have found helps them and works for them that doesn't necessarily meet, mean that they're getting that wrong it just might be more to do with meeting dietary insufficiencies rather than replacing acute sweat losses makes perfectly good sense uh, the only one you haven't spoken about is um calcium and i guess the story is the same you lose some calcium when you sweat and how is the calcium used by the body in such a way that if you lost a little too much then it would affect you physically yeah, I don't know the ex the exact symptoms that you'd suffer with calcium insufficiency. Obviously, chronically, it's a it's a structural issue with bone yeah. bone density and bone mineral density, but that can be the same with other uh, electrolytes. Sodium as well is is stored in bone, so yeah. there's that there's that side of things. And certainly for female athletes, you know, osteoporosis is a big issue and insufficient dietary calcium. Although there's been a bit of pushback in recent years about 
that being leveraged to just sell dairy products and that kind of thing there is evidence to suggest that insufficient calcium in the diet chronically can have effects on things like bone mineral density i'm not quite so sure on the the acute impacts of of calcium deficiency because again that's okay. not something which i don't I, I i've never come across that one that's never been presented to me as something which is uniquely likely to occur through sweat losses we have a very small amount of calcium right. in the products in order to replenish a reasonable amount that you might expect to lose in sweat right it's a order of magnitude difference uh, as i recall from your product so it's total it's really a, a sodium supplementation and the others are just sort of icing on the cake just to replicate what you've what you probably mean? lost in your, in your sweating so that makes sense and the, and the reason, i wanted sorry joe just to jump in the reason just to set in people's minds the reason why the sodium is is so important in exercise is that sodium the one of the big problems with dehydration during exercise is the contraction in blood volume because obviously you're your circulating blood volume is what helps you to cool down it's what allows you to sweat and it's what allows your heart to pump you know nutrients and oxygen to your working muscles and take the waste products away so yeah. circulating volume if you can maintain circulating volume a bit better you could cardiovascular exercise can go on longer at a higher intensity and so what sodium does is because the sodium level in your blood is very very important it needs to be maintained at a certain level if you take in too much water with insufficient sodium you will either not absorb enough of that water, in which case you become bloated and feel all those horrible GI issues, or you run the risk of diluting blood sodium and getting hypernatremia, which will negatively affect your performance and, and can actually be quite dangerous or even fatal with some people. So this, the role of the sodium is predominantly to improve absorption of the fluids that you drink in, through the gut into the bloodstream and then hold that fluid there to expand that the blood volume because it, it, like I say acutely that's the big problem that you face when you're exercising for a long time in warm conditions well it makes sense I, you know if we're talking about making the blood volume smaller but we've got the same number of red blood cells and I, I, I think the spleen can take in and let out red blood cells but you know let's just go with the simple example of the amount of stuff that's in the blood is the same but there's less water in there well, then it's going to be thicker. It's yeah. going to be harder to pump it around. Your heart's going to work harder to get the same sort of effect of moving nutrients around and getting waste products out. And, and the heart burns a lot of energy. So, uh, yeah, keeping that, that blood volume up has got to be uh, important when your body is working hard. Okay, so you'd said that you felt nauseated and uh, and you you kind of had maybe classic symptoms of dehydration. Uh, and we should go through what that means. You know, how do people know when they're dehydrated? But one of the things that I had heard, and probably why I years ago started supplementing with these electrolyte replacement products was cramps. Yeah. It was sort of generally understood that, you know, if you were cramping, it was because you were low on electrolytes. Yeah. Or you were dehydrated and and then later i you know read things that said oh probably you're cramping because you've exercised harder than you're used to and your your muscles are somehow worn out and and cramping is maybe some a sign of maybe some damage or or even that cramping is a more of a neurological thing and some of the ways that people have kind of I don't even know where these ideas came from. The odd thing is that they seem to work is, you know, pickle juice, mustard. Uh, my wife swims with a group of people who do these horrible sounding long distance swims and they carry mustard packs with them. And when they start to cramp, they just eat mustard out of these packs and yeah. cramps are gone. Uh, okay. Well, uh, you know, so there's vinegar in mustard and in pickle juice, and there's some there's salt, uh, and so you know it, it's kind of logical, but it makes no sense that it would happen instantaneously, that they could consume something and in a second the cramps would stop because I mean it's got to be thirty minutes or an hour before it could really like 
flow through your digestive system and into your bloodstream and get to where you were cramping. So there must be some neurological mm. aspect to cramping as well. But this has got to be something that you know about. Yeah. Can you tell us about cramping? So to, for, for context, my personal experience with this was that I was someone who I would describe you know, as a serial cramper in endurance events. I okay often suffered with muscle cramps and it, and even now on the the race I did last Monday nine hours long I was managing muscle cramps from about seven and a half eight hours in I was on the edge of really cramping up and that that was probably twofold for me there it's, it was due to if I'm honest like inadequate training for the length and duration and intensity of that event i was pushing myself very very hard and i yeah. had no right to based on the amount of mileage i've been doing in the last few months and also it was a little bit to do with the fact that it's a sort of semi self-supported event where drinking and consuming enough electrolytes was tricky and therefore yeah. i was probably also significantly you know under supplemented in that in that department but based on the experience that that i've got and I did my, I did carry some salt capsules and things like that with me. I managed to keep it under control. And so I've had a long history of personally like battling with and trying to win over with muscle cramps. I can say categorically that for me, the one of the biggest differences when I got, got the sodium intake and sodium balance, fluid balance correct in races was that cramping ceased to become an unmanageable problem. It never is never entirely gone away. I've had lots of races where I've had no muscle cramps now, but it was it was a feature of every single race in the past when I was getting this wrong. And there so were, the electrolytes are definitely a part of it, at are, least for you they personally. Are for me personally, and they are, I think, for a lot of people during long long distance events, especially in the heat and especially when sweat losses are high. Uh, the best way to describe it, I suppose, would be that you know cramping in this day and age appears to be like a a bit like a a suspect in a crime who has a very good lawyer because they are <laughs> they are always like at the crime scene you know cramping is always there when it's hot and humid and people are pushing themselves hard and but no one can produce the sort of the evidence to put it away you know it's yeah. and and so that opens the door for lots of competing theories and i think a lot of the competing theories are valid but they don't necessarily it doesn't mean that one theory has to blot out all the others so your point that neurological issues muscle damage fatigue there are certainly cases where asking muscles to do things that they're not trained to do can result in cramping if i set, set up on my indoor bike trainer and i'm lazy and i haven't my wife's been using it the saddle's a bit low and for me and i'm not really in shape and that kind of thing it doesn't take much for me to get cramp in my hip flexors and yeah. that's got, I'm not, not on there long enough for dehydration to be kicking in or to be a big problem. That's got to do with muscular fatigue. And you see sprint, sprinters pull up with cramps and that kind of thing. Uh, so I yeah. think that there, there's definitely issues, neurological kind of issues, and there are plenty of studies that have tried to look into this and demonstrate that you can kind of, in the right conditions, you can stimulate muscle cramps without there being an obvious massive fluid and electrolyte deficit. Mm. I think... Anecdotally, and this is going back in, in scientific literature over a hundred years, and also just in in day to day life, we we as a company, obviously, we have a dog in this fight, and we sell electrolyte supplements. But we have a lot of customers, almost on a daily basis now, that write back to us and say, "Cramps have dogged me for years, and since using the products, your products, the stronger products, in the way that you've described, it's become it's either gone away or become way less of a problem," and you know that that probably rings hollow with people who who hold a very vehement alternative opinion because clearly i have a vested interest in that kind of information i understand what you're saying and i gotta say it doesn't i don't really see a problem between the scientists trying to figure out what's really happening and a person trying to solve their personal problem that you know it, it's it reminds me of the the story of the finance professor walking across campus with a student talking about efficient markets and the student goes, look, there's a $20 bill laying on the ground. And the finance professor says, that's impossible. Somebody would have picked it up already. Yeah. And the student says, oh, and he reaches down and he picks it up. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, it, it doesn't cost much to add some salt 
into you know or or and these other electrolytes and and increase it and see if that helps your cramps and if it does great exactly we've that's exactly the stance i've taken with people is we've tried to put protocols together to help people understand um, what is a plausible amount of sodium and fluid that you might need to take to make a physiological dent and therefore have a an improve your chances of that correcting your cramping because going but rewinding back to when i was starting out doing long endurance events i was vaguely aware that you needed to take electrolytes as well as carbohydrates to keep going but for me and i'm embarrassed to say this now but there was no real consideration it was like electrolytes were some kind of magic pixie dust where as long as you sprinkled some in then that was what you needed to do I, I really wasn't thinking about dose response. You know, it was like presence or absence. And and now it, it I, I still see that with some people. For instance, we make electrolyte tablets that are designed to go in 16 ounces of water. And occasionally we get emails from people discussing the fact that they've taken X, Y, and Z electrolytes and it hasn't really helped. And, uh, and you go through the process with them, right, okay, what have you been doing that? Well, I put one of those in my bottle. Okay, how big's your bottle? Oh, the bottle's 32 ounces. Okay, well, <laughs> you've mixed it 50% more dilute. You know, you wouldn't do that with, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get the weed killer you're going to spray on your driveway and like dilute it by 50% and expect it to be as effective. You know, don't do that with your sports drink. It's that getting those kind of things getting those kind of things right and really testing and as you as you started out with this little bit you know saying if you can really just adding some extra salt with your fluid to the right level and testing that out is a very low risk very low cost and potentially very high reward strategy if you're a cramper if it doesn't work then you're going to have to look at other things and you know to to signify how much of a bigger problem this is with endurance athletes the the most hit blog on our website of all time I, I think i'm right in saying is the blog we've written about cramping because clearly it just resonates with a large amount of people and interestingly for your audience i think it my inference is that it happens more with older athletes than with younger athletes as well i've read that uh, yeah. and what i read was that the the issue is that i think that when you um your body stores glycogen in the muscles. It stores the fuel with the water. Yeah, correct. And so you've got more water on board the bigger your muscles. When you're older, you tend to have less muscle mass, so yeah. you have less water on board. Yeah, I think that's very true. And certainly we find that we see a skew towards, again, anecdotally, we see a skew towards the older athletes appreciating and using more of the stronger electrolyte supplements and seemingly reporting bigger benefits you know like you were saying before about your example of when you were younger and i was the same you know typically lower than average blood pressure despite doing all of the wrong things in lifestyle well when you're young you know your your entire physiology from a cellular level up is just more robust resilient more able to cope with abuse and all those kind of things you know i look at um my kids like any typical kids they sit and they will for breakfast their favorite thing to eat is a massive bowl of cereal probably some toast probably some fruit the, the carbohydrate load that they take on first thing in the morning is exactly what i used to do and, and if i did that now even if i've been exercising training it would make me feel awful because yeah, yeah. my ability to control that influx of sugar into the body is just compromised now that i'm in my 40s and and it took me years to figure that out because when i was young i used to eat cereal three times a day you know it's what athletes did and then right. after a while i started to associate it with like feeling a little bit lethargic and lousy and then before you know it i'm having like i probably barely ever eat it now you know because yeah. i've figured out that i can't do it but try telling that to an eight-year-old you know who just <laughs> hoovers it up and it sets them off for the day you know yes yes how true um well andy that was really great we're gonna run out of time here and so i wanted to uh, give you a chance to offer our audience any final advice anything that you know i didn't think to ask you about and you think is important to know uh and then also please tell us how we can find you and your writings, your blogs you've spoken about and your company online. Yeah, I think if people are interested in learning a bit more about 
the kind of topics that we've talked about we've got a knowledge hub on our website with lots of great blogs on there and it's keyword searchable certainly there are blogs about salt sodium intake and high blood pressure and the and the research around that there's a, we we've done one where we take a dive into a book called the salt fix which provides a very counterintuitive narrative about the fact that maybe a lot of people are under salting rather than over salting it's not specifically for athletes but there are it does it does talk about athletes in there and that's that's a useful resource so i can share that link directly with you there's right. the the in terms of advice i think the the usual go-to piece is that look don't take anyone else's advice around hydration nutrition for sports performance and treat it as kind of the gospel you have to figure out what works for you as an individual there are definitely some really good guidelines out there we focus as a company on trying to help people figure out how much carbohydrate they need on an hourly basis how much fluid how much sodium because that kind of those three things if you get those about right you tend to perform at your best all other things being equal but that individual recipe is is relatively unique to you and so a little bit of um, controlled trial and error making notes about what you eat and drink um, how that affects your performance how you see that evolve over time it's a fairly it's a fairly simple but laborious process but it pays huge dividends because especially as you get older you know you have to you have to use a lot more of your guile and intelligence and all the basically all the tricks in the bag because the vo2 max the peak power all of those kind of things melt away and although Next heart rate yeah. yeah exactly and although what i would say is although i'm in my sort of early to mid 40s now and not maybe as old as, as you joe and some of your listeners what i will say is that i i I've managed to sustain some pretty decent performances over some long endurance events recently by by really focusing on all of those those additional things like getting my fueling and hydration absolutely on point, like getting my pacing and my, my pacing because young athletes, I know if you were the same, but I always used to go out too hard in races. It took years to kind of and so and if you put, if you get all of those those additional things which don't require brute force and fitness together, it's actually amazing what you can do in terms of yeah. holding on to your performances for longer. Um, so that's that's where I'd say, and we we write in our blog, if people want to sign up to our newsletter, that's a great resource for these kind of things because oh, we, yeah. we just write about stuff we're interested in in our newsletter. It's not kind of a salesy newsletter. It's, it's about topics in sport and exercise and health and performance that, that we're into. And because this this is us we're a group of athletes in our office who are getting older this is the kind of stuff we write about so fantastic hit the website and sign up for the newsletter would be the top tip i guess that sounds right and and i'll uh, echo that the blog posts are not salesy marketing pieces they're they're good thought pieces and and include um you know links to research articles and so it, it's it's good information for anybody who's looking to understand themselves and how to perform better I did have one other question that uh, you reminded me of, and it had to do with an experience that I had some years ago when I tried the keto. I had never really bought into this a religion-like diet, but I, but I really bought into keto, and I really did it whole hog, and, and, and I got some really amazing benefits out of it. I'm glad I did it. It changed my body for the better. Um, I couldn't sustain it in the end because it, it affected my athletic performance in a way that I didn't like. But one thing that happened, and I just wonder if this isn't true to some extent for people like me who are whose diet is getting better and better over time as they zero in on these, you know, smart decisions that you were talking about. So we, you know, we can't we can't be young. Uh, and have natural resiliency, but we can be smart and we can optimize our body in ways where it can't really take care of itself and we have to be smarter about it. So with the keto diet, so a low carb diet, I found that my, I had to add salt into my diet for the first time in my life. That I, I read that it was true that 
when you have a low carb diet, your body dumps electrolytes. Yeah. Now, I don't know why, I don't know the, understand the mechanism of that, but I was, you know, one of the legions of keto people buying Himalayan salt and a pinch of salt went on everything. Yeah. Not because I wanted the taste, although I like the taste. I, I discovered why do people do that? My dad mm. was a person who added salt to everything. Well, it tastes great. Mm. I did it because otherwise I was cramping. Yeah. And so I wonder if one of the problems that people have, especially older athletes who are eating a very healthy diet now with not much processed food, is that they they start their hard endurance events in a low sodium state. Mm. So they don't really have reserves that they might have had when they were younger. Yeah, no, I think you, it's, very, it's very common, it's very true. If you're on a ketogenic diet, which is essentially really, really low in carbohydrate, your body, you, especially in the early phases, the first couple of weeks, you'll, you will burn through your muscle glycogen stores, you'll reduce the amount of glycogen that you're storing in the body, and glycogen, as you pointed out earlier, holds with it a significant amount of water. So for every molecule of glycogen, you've got several molecules of, of water. And when you lose that glycogen, you lose that water. So your total body water is going to drop. It's why often people see really immediate results in terms of weight loss on a mm. keto diet. It's not you, you do probably lose some fat as well, but predominantly in the early stages, you're just dumping a load of water along with mm. the carbs. And then to counteract that, to help you hold on to more water in the body, a higher salt intake is required. And, and some people do report cramping and things like that if they don't. Um, so what what you experience there is definitely not uncommon and and i think you know then moving along from that into the kind of like a more of a general if you're eating a low processed food diet and if you are training a lot there can be this temptation to then resist the urge to put salt on food or whatever and what what i would say to people there is just don't be don't be afraid of it obviously you you need to be mindful of if you're certainly if you're under a physician if you're on high blood pressure medication if you've got issue with blood pressure there are people who are salt sensitive and you should yeah. not take anything i say as like advice to contradict that but right. at the same token i don't feel that for the vast majority of endurance athletes salting your food to taste is a bad idea um, especially when, when you're in the periods of heavy training and like what you were saying about the cramping issue it's one of those things where if you start doing it and find it results in more energy performance benefits reduce cramping or whatever then it's probably not a bad thing yeah, you just yeah. got to keep an eye and just be mindful there's no what, what i think and you you pointed this out with the keto thing where i think it anything can go wrong is when it becomes religious or or in terms of being you know like a like an absolute focus for the sake of it you know the the idea that we should do things to extremes and yeah set live by very very set rules when it comes to nutrition is a bit worrying because although those rules might be globally good a lot of the time they're not going to be universally applicable and great all of the time like i'm, I'm yeah. with you on the fact that whenever i've eaten a lower carbohydrate diet i've definitely seen some health and metabolic benefits and body composition benefits but i've also found that it doesn't help endurance performance as much as a high higher carbohydrate diet does but yeah. you need to tread a fine line because does that mean that a, that i'm promoting a high carbohydrate diet all the time like absolutely not during periods of heavy training or competition that i eat a lot of carbs but then at other times i actively try and dial them back if i'm not working out as much because it seems more sensible my body doesn't need them so having sure. the having the the intellectual horsepower to sort of be be a bit more flexible on that rather than needing to be dogmatic is a really is a really good idea but it's also difficult especially if you go on social media everyone's got their tribe everyone's got their way it's their way or the highway and that's what i find most difficult to deal with in those kind of arguments you know keto is a classic it's kind of it's definitely not died a death but it's definitely less prominent than it was five or eight years ago but like yeah. you a lot of people got swept up in it and it became the only way and I, yeah. I always think if you if you if you're involved in something where that is the it's it's our way or the highway, it's a good idea to like step back and evaluate that. Yeah, that's a red flag for sure. Mm. Well, fantastic, Andy. This has been really great. Totally educational. I feel better about adding salt to uh, ward off cramping and to improve performance, especially on longer, hotter 
events. And uh, I'm glad I found your products because I think they're fantastic. Appreciate it. Thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation, Joe. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Good stuff. Thank you so much for listening in to my discussion about managing electrolytes with Andy Blow of Precision Hydration. You can find more information about Andy and his company in the show notes. While you're there, you can sign up to take a free fitnesses practices assessment, send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. That'd be a great help. Thanks again.